Christians often spend a lot of time seeking to prove the resurrection, and that is worthy work. Uh, There are plenty of arguments and evidences we can give to prove the bodily resurrection of Jesus on the third day after his death, to establish it beyond the shadow of doubt as a fact of history. But what's interesting is in the New Testament, there's really no attempt to prove the resurrection in this way. Rather, the resurrection itself is proof. The resurrection is used as proof of a number of other things. So, for example, the resurrection is used as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. The resurrection proves God keeps his promises. The resurrection proves that Satan and death have been defeated. The resurrection proves that God will redeem his creation. The resurrection proves we have been forgiven and justified and redeemed. It's interesting, if you look at early Christian preaching, the apostles don't try to prove Christ's resurrection. Rather, they appeal to the resurrection as proof. It is the foundation on which they build their teaching. The resurrection means Jesus has a new and glorious and indestructible life, which means his disciples have a new and glorious and indestructible life, which means the world can have a new and glorious and indestructible life. The resurrection is both the fulfillment of our hopes and the foundation of those hopes. Now Luke, in this chapter we've read, gives us a very full account of Christ's resurrection, and it's really centered around three openings. The opening of the tomb, the opening of the scriptures, and the opening of the disciples' eyes. And so let's look at each one of these openings. All of the Gospels, while they vary in certain details, Uh, All of the gospel accounts give us the same basic Easter facts, the same basic Easter story. It was early in the morning, the first day of the week, and the women came to the tomb with spices, and they found the tomb opened up and empty. The stone had been rolled away, and there were angels announcing that Christ had risen from the grave. In verse 5 of Luke 24, the angels asked the women a pointed question, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, the women should have known that the tomb would be empty. They should have expected it. They should have brought champagne glasses with them rather than burial spices. They should have come expecting the tomb to be empty because as the angels go on to say in verse 6, remember, Remember how Jesus spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Jesus had predicted this. The crucifixion was not some deviation from the plan. It was a sign everything was going exactly according to plan. Jesus had predicted this. He had prophesied it. And the angels are saying to the women, if you had believed his promise of resurrection, you would not seek him among the dead because you would know he is alive. The one who was crucified has been raised up on the third day. 
So the women hear this, but it doesn't instantly bring them to faith. They are perplexed by this, and so they go and they tell the 11 apostles and the other disciples this astounding news. But of course, their report is not immediately believed by the apostles either. The apostles are just as confused, just as confounded by this. And so Peter, as the lead apostle, decides he's got to go see for himself. So he runs to the tomb, he looks into it, the open tomb, and he sees the linen cloths lying there. He sees an empty tomb and he saw the burial cloths, these linen cloths, much like the linen cloths the high priest would leave behind on the Day of Atonement when the work of sacrifice was done. But one thing Peter does not see is a body. The tomb is opened and the tomb is empty. Those are the facts. And so he goes away, the text tells us, marveling at these things, marveling over these facts. Peter is bewildered. He is shocked and surprised. There are all these clues here, but Peter still can't put it together to grasp what's really happened. See, we know Easter is good news. We know Easter as the best possible news. But at this point, it is still a matter of confusion for the disciples. They are perplexed as they seek to piece together the facts right in front of them as they try to make sense out of it all. The tomb is open, but their minds and hearts are not. The tomb is open, but their minds and hearts have not yet been opened. Well, Luke goes on from there to tell us about another event, another episode, still on that first day of the week, still on Easter Sunday, so this is still the same day. There are two disciples who were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and suddenly Jesus appears to them, and he joins their party, and he walks with them, but though they had been disciples of Jesus during his ministry, they do not recognize Jesus. This is Cleopas, and most likely his wife, Mary. So this is a husband-wife pair who have been following Jesus, but now they've lost all hope. They've lost all hope. They're depressed and despondent because Jesus was nailed to a tree. Jesus has been crucified. They pinned their hopes to Jesus, and then Jesus got pinned to a tree. And so their hopes have been dashed. They figured that if he died, well, he must still be dead. And if he's dead, he can't be the Messiah. They are likely fleeing the city of Jerusalem out of fear because if Jesus has been crucified, his followers could very well be next on the hit list. And so they decide it's time to get out of there. This is why on Easter Sunday, you see the disciples fleeing away from Jerusalem or locking themselves behind closed doors because they are fearful. And so it is here. But Jesus joins them as they walk along the way on the road to Emmaus. And the three of them now are walking and talking together. And Jesus asks them why they are sad. And one of the figures, Cleopas, recounts what has happened. And of course, this is very ironic. He is telling the story of Jesus to Jesus without knowing it. Yeah, they think Jesus is ignorant when really they are the ignorant ones. Cleopas says, are you the only person around who hasn't heard? You know, what's wrong with you? Don't you know what's happened? Haven't you heard? Well, actually, Jesus is the only one who actually knows what has happened. Cleopas and the other disciples are the ones who are ignorant. 
But Cleopas goes on. He, he, he recounts the whole story. There was this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. He was mighty in word and deed. That's reminiscent of how Moses is described. So they expected Jesus to be a greater Moses who would redeem Israel in a greater exodus. But Cleopas goes on to describe what happened. The chief priests and the rulers condemned him to death and crucified him. Cleopas says, we had hoped he would redeem Israel. In other words, we had hoped he would be the long-awaited promised Messiah, but today is the third day since his death. And the point is obvious, obviously if Jesus died, especially if he died by crucifixion, he cannot be the Messiah. Cleopas goes on, he says, some women of our company went to the tomb early today, but could not find his body they told us angels announced he is alive. So Cleopas has got the facts straight, but he doesn't yet believe them. He hasn't yet put it all together. You see what's happening here. Cleopas has all the facts at his disposal, but his hopes have been shattered. His hopes are dead because Jesus died. And despite all of this, he assumes Jesus is still dead because, hey, even in the first century, they knew dead bodies tend to stay dead. And so if Jesus died on a cross, that's it. Hope's dashed into the story. Sure, there are rumors of a resurrection. The angel said something about this. The women passed it along to us. There are rumors of a resurrection, but that's all, just rumors. No one, Cleopas says, has seen Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? The open tomb by itself is not enough. Not enough to convince these disciples, not enough to bring them to a true and solid faith. They know of the open tomb, but they still don't believe. So what happens next? Jesus rebukes Cleopas, and again, I think this is his wife, Mary. Jesus rebukes Cleopas and Mary, just as the angel had rebuked the women at the open tomb. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then beginning at Moses and through all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does Jesus do for this pair of disciples? He gives them a Bible study. A Bible study that goes from Genesis to Jesus, we could say. Jesus shows how all the scriptures, this obviously would be the Old Testament at this point, what we know is the Old Testament, how all the scriptures concern him. They are about him. The whole book is about Jesus, his suffering and his glory, his death and his resurrection. And Jesus shows them this. Jesus demonstrates from the scripture, this is the way the story had to go. They were clueless, even though they had all these facts in front of them, they were clueless until Jesus uses the scriptures to connect the dots for them. He uses scripture to show how his death and resurrection fit into the whole story God has been telling and how they bring the whole story God has been telling to fulfillment. Now, wouldn't you love to have been a part of that Bible study? I mean, if ever there was a Bible study to be a part of, that would be it to hear Jesus expound from the scriptures of the Old Testament, how they concern him, how they bear witness to him, how they have come to fulfillment in him. Well, my hope is every time you hear a sermon from the Old Testament, from this pulpit here at TPC, you get a little taste of what that Bible study was like. 
Because that's what we seek to do when we teach the Old Testament, is to show you how the Old Testament is a Christian book, how it concerns Jesus. It is about the sufferings of Jesus and the glory he would enter into. That's what the Old Testament is about. Jesus paints a portrait of himself using the law and the prophets as his palette. Jesus is the key to the Old Testament. You want to unlock the meaning of the Old Testament? Look at Jesus. But in the same way, we can say the Old Testament is the key to Jesus. You want to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do? you got to understand the Old Testament. Jesus and the Old Testament are a pair. They go together. Uh, I've heard some Christians uh, from time to time refer to themselves as New Testament Christians. We're New Testament Christians, New Testament believers. No, no, that's not right. Let's not speak that way. We are whole Bible Christians. Because our faith in Jesus is actually rooted in the Old Testament. It grows out of the soil of the Old Testament. Our faith in Jesus starts in the Old Testament and grows from there. Well, it's interesting in verse 32, they comment on this Bible study. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus opens the scriptures for them and their hearts burn. Their hearts burn. Their hearts are set aflame. I think this can be seen as a preview of an event Luke is going to record for us a little bit later. Actually, the very end of Luke's gospel is pointing to this. But then we pick it up in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. Fifty days after Easter... At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, what form does the Holy Spirit take? What form does he take? Tongues of fire. Flaming tongues. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples to make them burn, to make their hearts burn. Well, already here, that's starting to happen. This is a preview of Pentecost. As Jesus teaches the word, he is already breathing out his fiery spirit on the disciples, kindling that Pentecostal flame that is about to explode 50 days forward. And I will tell you this, whenever and wherever Christians read and study scripture, whenever scripture is preached and taught, As a book about Jesus, the fiery spirit is at work through that scripture to make our hearts burn. This is what the church is about. Teaching the word of God so the fiery spirit can be unleashed into our hearts and make us burn. And so we can spread that flame to others. So the torch will be passed from one disciple to another and from one generation to the next, right down to the present time. That flame is still burning today whenever Jesus is preached from the scripture. The hearts of God's people burn with the fire of God's spirit. To preach Jesus from the scriptures is to strike a match. It's to set our hearts aflame. It's to set the world on fire. To preach Jesus from the scriptures is to throw another log on this Pentecostal fire to keep it burning. To keep that fire the Spirit has ignited going. 
teaching the scriptures in this way, teaching the scriptures in a Christocentric way as a book about Jesus unleashes the fire of the spirit in our hearts and therefore in the world. Now it's interesting, a little further on in this passage, here Jesus gives a Bible study, as it were. He, he preaches a sermon from the Old Testament about himself for Cleopas and Mary. Jesus does the same thing for the apostles later on in this chapter when he appears to them. You see this down in verses 36 to 49. So consider this. Consider what happens there. Okay, let, let me set the scene up for you and you can see how this is all about Jesus opening up the scriptures so they can understand what the open tomb means. Jesus appears in their midst and he says, peace to you. But they're not feeling that peace just yet. They're terrified. They think this must be Jesus' ghost. But Jesus shows them he is back from the dead. He's back bodily and better than before. Jesus is back from the dead and he's better than ever. And you see some of that in, in, in some of the, the, the things Luke tells us about what the risen Christ could do. Apparently the risen Christ could keep himself from being recognized. He could disguise himself. Apparently he could apparate into locked rooms if we look at the, all the gospel accounts together. He could move back and forth between heaven and earth. His body is fully at home on this earth, but it's also fully at home in heaven. He can transport himself back and forth between heaven and earth. It seems like that's what he's doing for these 40 days until he finally ascends into heaven for good until the last day when he comes again. He shows his disciples here what it means for him to be resurrected. The risen Christ is risen bodily. That's what resurrection means. That's what the term describes. It's a re-embodiment. But he didn't just go back to the old body. Yes, it is the same body, but it's the same body now glorified and transformed and transfigured. With powers and properties we can scarcely imagine. The Apostle Paul describes the resurrection body as a kind of heavenly body, a spiritual body. Jesus says in verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Behold my hands and feet, it is I myself. And no doubt, as John tells us in his gospel, they saw the nail scars in his hands and feet. They see, this is the one who was crucified, who has come back from the dead. Jesus says, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus has been re-embodied in a glorious and indestructible way. His body has been raised up, but where it was before he had a weak body, now he has a body that is powerful in the spirit. And this is so, it's so important to understand this. There's so much worse thing to be said about this. But let me just point this out to you. Of all the major religions, worldviews, and philosophies that have come along, that have arisen in all of human history. One thing that is utterly unique about the biblical faith, compared to all these other religions and worldviews and philosophies that are out there, one thing that is utterly unique about biblical faith is its emphasis on the physicality of redemption. Not just that our redemption was accomplished in a body, Jesus' body hanging on the cross and then raised from the dead, it's more than that. Redemption includes the body. Redemption is not complete until your body has been redeemed and glorified. The Christian hope is not about escaping the body when you die. It's about getting the body back in a glorified way in the resurrection at the last day. That's the blessed hope 
of the Christian. You know, C.S. Lewis said, don't try to be more spiritual than God. God is not allergic to matter. God made matter. He likes matter. He inhabits matter. He's incarnate in matter. The, the, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, as we say, took to himself a human body, and he's in that human body right now and will be for all eternity. And we will be in glorified bodies like his for all eternity. We will be raised bodily at the last day. And you might say, well, what are we going to do in these bodies? Where are they going to be? Well, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, heaven and earth will become one. They'll be merged into one. And all the things we were made to do as humans, we will do in a glorified kind of way. That's the expectation Scripture gives to us. An embodied existence for all eternity because you're not really you. You're not fully you without your body. You can't just discard the body and still be you. You're not fully redeemed unless and until your body is redeemed. And no other religion has anything quite like that. This vision for a physical final salvation, an embodied salvation. The ancient Greeks, Plato and the Platonists, they would have said, oh, that's gross. Don't want that kind of redemption. Because they despised God's creation. We love God's creation. We embrace God's creation. And we know God has embraced his creation as well, even in its fallenness. And God will redeem his creation. That is our hope. According to the gospel, we do not get redeemed out of the physical world. Rather, redemption includes the physical world. And so that's what we have to look forward to, a glorified body in a glorified heavens and earth. And so Jesus, to further demonstrate the physicality of his resurrection body, eats a piece of fish and some honeycomb. This is to demonstrate, it seems, that he is really and truly embodied. But these are not just physical actions. I think they're also symbolic actions, as is always the case in Scripture. The physical is symbolic always of something greater. So we might ask, why fish? Why honey? Well, why fish? Well, fish all throughout Scripture represent the Gentiles. Think of the story of Jonah. Okay, it's the one story in the Old Testament. Uh, that most obviously has a fish in it. It's because Jonah is sent to the Gentiles. Or think of that expression, fishers of men, that Jesus uses to describe the kind of evangelistic work that his apostles will ultimately do when they take the gospel, not just to Israel, but to the nations. Fish represent the Gentiles, just as the sea represents Gentiles. Jesus eats fish here because Gentiles are about to be incorporated into his body and into the body of the church. And so this points to the church's global mission that he announces at the very end of Luke's gospel, indeed at the end of Matthew's gospel and in other places as well. A global mission. Why honey? Well, the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey. And it seems here Jesus is, is building upon that symbolism only to indicate that now it's not just the promised land, it's the promised earth, the whole earth, the whole world has been promised to the disciples of Jesus. The whole world will become a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, 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 the whole globe will flow with milk and honey as it were. He'll make the whole world his promised land. But this could also point to the scriptures. Because the scriptures are often compared to honey in scripture. Think of Psalm 19. 
where the psalmist says God's commands are sweeter than honey or even the drippings of the honeycomb or Psalm 119 where the psalmist says God's words are sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Why is Jesus eating honey? He is tasting the goodness of God. He's ingesting the sweetness of God's word. Because look what's going to happen next. He's going to share with them the sweetness of God's word. He's going to share with them the sweetness of God's word. Here comes the clincher, verse 44. He says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things might be fulfilled. That's a key word. That all things might be fulfilled, which were written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then he opens, there's that word again, he opens their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. As he opens the scriptures for them, he simultaneously opens their understanding. He opens the Bible in order to open their minds and their hearts so they can understand what the open tomb means. And so just as Jesus taught Mary and Cleopas from the scripture. So here he leads a Bible study. Again, he opens the Bible in order to open their minds. And again, what do we see? What what does Luke tell us? What does Jesus tell us about the Bible? The Bible is one man's biography. The Bible is the biography of Jesus. It is all about him. Jesus is present in the Old Testament. He is promised in the Old Testament. He is present and he is promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The Bible is one big storybook about the Christ. He is the point. He is the center. It all concerns him. See, what's the best thing the risen Christ can do for his despondent disciples, these disciples who have had their hopes dashed? What's the best thing he can do for them? It's open the scriptures for them. He opens the scriptures for them just as he did for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he shows them from Moses and from David and from Isaiah and all the rest. He shows them how the whole Bible finds its fulfillment in him. Now, I want you to think about this because this is so interesting and it is so relevant to our lives today. Isn't it interesting that even when Jesus is physically present with his people in his resurrection glory, it takes an open Bible to bring their hope to life. Even when the risen Christ is with them, physically present with them, it takes an open Bible to bring the disciples to a living hope, to a resurrection hope. Jesus reveals himself Biblically, even when he is physically present. Even when Jesus is physically present, the disciples experience him through the scriptures. Even when he is physically present, they experience him biblically through the Bible. The Bible gives them their experience of the risen Christ. The Bible enables them to make sense of their experience and and, and the other facts they've encountered, like the empty tomb. This book, this, this book is how Jesus wants us to meet him. In these pages, in the story this book tells, Jesus' way of showing us Jesus is the scriptures. 
That's what this is all about. You know, we so often do the opposite. We think, oh, well, the Bible's not enough. You know, if only, if only I could see the risen Christ in his glory, that would be enough to dispel my doubts. If only I could see the risen Christ and touch him myself. <laughs> no, that's crazy. Even if Jesus did show up in person, you know what he would do to dispel your doubts? Even if Jesus showed up physically right next to you, right here in this room today, you know what he would do to dispel the doubts of the doubters? You know what he would do to kindle hope in each one of us? He would open the scriptures for us and he would lead us in a Bible study. That's what the risen Christ would do. See, in a very real sense, an open Bible does for us, indeed, I would say it does more for us than seeing the open tomb with our own eyes ever could. In a way, you might say the Bible does more for us than even seeing the risen Christ with our own eyes could do. If you've got an open Bible, you have in principle all you need in order to know the risen Christ. This book is our Emmaus Road. This book gives us our Emmaus Road experience. Jesus is always available to you in the scriptures. His flesh and blood are presented to you in paper and ink. His, his flesh and blood are presented to you in the black and white on the pages of scripture. Because the Bible contains all the prophecy, all the promises you need to understand what Jesus came to do. The Bible contains the history, it contains the events, it tells us what happened in history, and it shows us what it all means. It presents Jesus to us as the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and promises God made in ages past. And that's really the key thing. See, Jesus comes alongside of us. And he walks with us, he journeys with us, and he speaks to us through his word. That's how we come to know the risen Christ. Although I want to tell you, even that's not quite enough because there's one more opening here we've got to see. We've got the open tomb. We've got the open scripture. There's one more opening that happens here. It's the opening of eyes. And it's really important to see how it happens. For this, we've got to jump back to what happened when Jesus was traveling on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his wife. They finally arrived at Emmaus, and Cleopas and his wife extend hospitality to Jesus. Now, one thing that's interesting in Scripture is that whenever people show hospitality, you never know what's going to happen. You show hospitality, interesting things happen. You might end up entertaining angels, or you might end up with Jesus at your table without even knowing it. They extend hospitality to Jesus. They say, abide with us, for the day is almost over. Come and stay with us. But an odd thing happens when they sit down at the table. The guest becomes the host. And he sat at the table with them. And he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Now that ought to sound really, really familiar. That sequence of actions with the bread, taking, blessing, breaking, giving. Those are the same actions, the same verbs that were used back in the upper room account. Those are the same actions Jesus did with bread in the upper room when he was with his disciples at the Last Supper. This meal connects with that meal. If that meal was the Last Supper, 
This meal is the first supper. It is the Lord's Supper. He's celebrating communion with them. This is the Eucharist. This is the Lord's Supper on the Lord's day with the Lord's people in the Lord's presence. And look at what happens next. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. What's happening here? In the breaking of the bread, they come to recognize Jesus for who he is. Jesus has taught them from his word. Now he's going to feed them from his table. And teaching the word is incomplete without eating the bread. They go together. They come to know the risen Jesus in the breaking of the bread. No Emmaus Road experience is complete without the Lord's Supper. No Bible teaching, no preaching of God's Word is complete without the Supper. As he broke the bread, their eyes were opened, the text tells us. That's uh, that's, that's the key. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. Now, does that remind you of anything else in Scripture? Their eyes being opened in a meal. We'll go back to the very first meal in the whole Bible. Adam and his wife, another husband-wife pair, what do they do? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden to them. And what happens in Genesis 3? It says their eyes were opened. In Genesis 3, as they took this forbidden fruit and ate it, their eyes were open. And it was a bad thing in this case. Suddenly they knew they were naked. They saw that they were naked and they experienced shame. They realized they had sinned. Their eyes were open to the darkness they had brought into the world. Their eyes were open to their own nakedness and shame. Their eyes were open in a bad way when they ate. Well, here it's different. Here... The eyes of this husband-wife pair are open, but their eyes are open in a good way when they eat. Their eyes are open to see the light. Which means in a very real sense, this is what Luke is telling us, in a very real sense, the antidote to that first sin, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden by what they ate and had their eyes open in a bad way, the antidote to that is found at the Lord's table. At the Lord's table, in the Lord's Supper, the fall in some way is reversed. Instead of a fall, it's an exaltation. Eyes are open, but now eyes are open not to our shame and nakedness. Rather, our eyes are open to to the glory and beauty of the risen Christ. At the Lord's Supper, we come to know Christ As he is. We come to know Christ, yes, as the one who endured the shame and nakedness of the cross for us. But we also come to see he did so in order to clothe us in beauty and glory. That's what we see in the breaking of the bread. The shame he endured. The nakedness he endured in order to bring us glory and clothe us in beauty. In the breaking of the bread, our eyes are open to see Jesus as the new Adam who has brought in a new creation, who is the one who fulfills God's promises, who takes away our shame, who takes away the curse. We come to see Jesus as the embodiment of God's love. Cleopas and Mary had given up on Jesus. Their faith was shattered. Their hope was in tatters. 
They were blind to what Jesus had done. They were blind to, to, to who Jesus was up until this moment. They could not recognize him or understand his mission. But then, in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened to behold the glory of the crucified and now risen Christ. In the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened to his salvation. And this is what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's a sign of God's salvation. The Lord's Supper is the sign that creation as a whole is being renewed and restored and redeemed through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come, again, to accomplish some kind of Gnostic salvation that only impacts a, a spiritual, ethereal realm. No, he came to turn back the thorns and the, the, the thistles. To restore the man and the woman to the original project he gave to us in Genesis 1. To rule and fill the earth. That's the original project God gave to the man and the woman. Now you've got another man and a woman who are being restored so that project can be fulfilled. That original project to rule and fill the earth in wisdom, in love, in righteousness. The Lord's Supper is the sign that Jesus is leading the way in reordering the whole of creation, in redeeming the whole of creation, pushing back the curse and bringing blessing in its place. The Lord's Supper is the sign that grace restores nature. It's a sign of cosmic redemption. And so even a task as simple as baking bread and sharing it together is now taken up into the kingdom of Christ and is a sign of what is to come. When the whole creation will be renewed, when the human family will be fully redeemed. The Lord's Supper is a sign of human life restored, of human dominion restored. In fact, you could say it's the first fruits of that restoration, not just a sign of what is to come, but a sign that is happening now. Why is the breaking of the bread so significant in Luke 24? This is the eighth meal in Luke's gospel. The last supper in the upper room was the seventh meal, a sign that the old creation week had run its course and was ending. This meal as the eighth meal is a sign that a new creation week has arrived. A new creation is dawning. The old age of curse and exile is over. We are no longer shut out of the garden of God. We are now welcomed in to eat from God's own table. The bread is a sign of the new world. Here at the table, Jesus reveals the substance and pattern of his kingdom. His kingdom is manifest in the breaking of the bread. Remember, Jesus all throughout the Gospels is always using bread as a kind of metaphor. He's always teaching and demonstrating that he is the bread of life, that he is the true manna that has come down from heaven for the life of the world. At the Last Supper, he took bread and said, this is my body, so body and bread go together. And then we're told he broke that bread. He ripped it apart. This is my body broken for you. Why is his body broken? It's broken for us, so he can give it to us, so he can feed us, so he can give himself for us. His body is broken on the cross, so he can give himself to us. Jesus was broken and torn apart to give us life, to open our eyes, 
to see his suffering and his glory. His body was broken and torn apart to make us whole. That is the pattern of his kingdom. That is the pattern of the Christian life. Suffering, then glory. Sacrifice, then victory. Cross, then resurrection. That's how it works. Let me wrap this up with a couple of observations you can take with you that I think will help you understand how this passage can be relevant to us right now. This passage, Luke 24, is full of liturgical details that have been crucial to the life of the church, especially the worship of the church over the last 2,000 years. If you read through this passage carefully, you will catch various liturgical fragments here, little expressions Luke records that have made their way into Christian worship. So for example, the angels announce at the empty tomb, he's risen in verse 6. Later, Mary and Cleopas say in verse 34, he has risen indeed. The angels say he has risen. The disciples echo, he has risen indeed. Jesus comes among the disciples and says, peace to you when he's in their midst. That too should sound familiar from the liturgy. So really, this is how you can look at it. It's like that whole first day, that whole Easter Sunday is an extended all-day worship service. It is an extended liturgy that brings together biblical exposition with sacramental celebration. The Bible and the liturgy go together. They must not be separated. The Bible and the bread go together and must not be separated. In Luke 24, Jesus teaches the word and then he breaks the bread with them. Word and sacrament go together and form a whole. It's obvious neither one is complete without the other. Cleopas described Jesus as mighty in word and deed. That was a way of summing up his earthly ministry. We can still talk about Jesus as mighty in word and deed today. He's mighty in word and deed in our midst when we gather in his presence. He is mighty in word and deed, speaking his truth to us and breaking bread at the table for us to share in. In the liturgy, Jesus is mighty in word and deed. He speaks to us and he acts on our behalf to feed us. The church has been doing scripture and sacrament ever since that first Easter Sunday. Every Sunday since then, for almost 2,000 years, Christians have gathered together to do Bible and to do Eucharist, teaching and table every Sunday since for for nearly 2,000 years now. That's over 100,000 Sundays Christians have gathered to have the scriptures open so their hearts could burn as we find Jesus on every page. For over 100,000 Sundays, Christians have gathered to break bread so their eyes can be opened to the pattern and breadth of Jesus' kingdom so we can see him for who he is in the breaking of the bread. And that's what we've come to gather to do today to experience the power of Jesus in word and deed, in teaching and in table. So our hearts will burn and so our eyes will be opened. We've come together to open the scriptures where Jesus meets us and sets our hearts on fire as he speaks to us. And we've come together to break the bread so our eyes will be open to behold his resurrection glory. And in all of this, he gives us peace. He drives away our doubts and despair, and he fills us with joy. He does all of this 
through his word and at his table. He opened the tomb that he might open the scriptures, that he might open our eyes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.